Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Do you ever just sit back and think, that's it, that's the question. Now, I only ask because most people don't seem to do that anymore. It seems that today we're mostly just told what to think, and more importantly, how to feel and then act or react to those feelings. And then out of those that are still able to rub two synapses together, can you rub synapses together? It seems that there's some really bad thinking going on. Not necessarily evil, although there's plenty of that, but no, just poor execution of the whole thinking process. So would it be better for them to be part of the non-thinkers? I'm not sure. I'll have to think about that. On today's episode, first we'll think about terrible lizard people, and then we'll think for ourselves. So, go get the largest terrarium you can find, and keep an eye out for the Thought Police, because I think here we go. I'll admit it, I'm a fan of the hypothetical, the thought exercise. What I've found in the recent past, however, is that people don't seem to understand the hypothetical scenarios. Uh, let's say your leg is broken, it would be hard to get around. Oh, my leg isn't broken. Yes, I know it's not, but let's just say it is, hypothetically. Oh, okay, but it's not, it's not broken. Okay, well, I'm going to go slam my head into a brick wall for a while. <laughs> uh, I've had multiple conversations with grown adults that are otherwise intelligent, rational people that basically went about this well. Now, generally, I've used the hypothetical scenario in either a serious way to play out some potential scenarios or in a joking manner to imagine the absurd. The article review that follows is a complete and total hypothetical, a thought exercise. The problem is that this is absolutely absurd, but it's being done seriously. I just don't understand how rational, seemingly logical people can write what they write, sit back and think, uh, yeah, that's right, that's exactly right. Do these people not have editors? Do these sites not have anyone looking out for, I don't know, journalistic integrity? It appears that no, no, they do not. Found on iflscience.com, headline, What if the dinosaurs hadn't gone extinct? Why our world might look very different. Okay, so I'm with them on the premise. I agree. Were we to still have dinosaurs around, you know, the full-sized, overgrown reptiles, this world would indeed look very different. But they're not talking about people being snatched up and eaten, or a massive sauropod ripping down phone lines. No, the picture they use for this article is that of a being that's been termed as a dinosauroid. This is an upright-walking, slightly odd-looking humanoid with a reptile head. And this isn't an illustration, this is a photograph of a real statue housed in the Canadian Museum of Nature. So judging by the statue, this should be... A hypothetical in the absurd. But no, 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 this is a serious article, a serious thought exercise. So of course they start with the well-known scientific fact that a massive asteroid hit the Earth 66 million years ago, quote, and changed the course of evolution. Uh, Due to the sun being blotted out by the mass of stuff in the air, plants died and then animals died and over 90% of all species just poof, vanished. 
when everything calmed back down, the only dinosaurs left were a handful of birds, because, as we all know, birds are nothing but evolved dinosaurs. <sighs> okay, so let's pause here for just a moment. Yes, a handful of massive asteroids have struck this planet. Uh, the evidence is irrefutable. No, it wasn't millions or even hundreds of thousands of years ago. It was most likely about 4,500 years ago and part of the global flood event. None of the species, or more accurately, none of the kinds of animals disappeared, but nearly all life on the Earth vanished. I'd say probably well over 90%. No, birds aren't dinosaurs. Birds are birds. Dinosaurs are land-dwelling animals, and flying dinosaurs are... Well, I really have no idea. Maybe considered birds? I really don't know. Doesn't matter. Bottom line, birds aren't the evolution of dinosaurs. There's literally zero proof of that, just fanciful thinking and creative writing. Okay, let's go on. The author continues, quote, But this catastrophic event made human evolution possible. The surviving mammals flourished, including little proto-primates that would evolve into us. Oh, wow, hey, what a, what a lucky break for us, huh? So his question is, quote, is humanity just here by chance, or is the evolution of intelligent tool users inevitable? Imagine, if you will, that the asteroid never happened, extinction of the dinosaurs never occurred, mammals never evolved, but dinosaurs continued to evolve. Would there be, quote, highly evolved raptors planting their flag on the moon, dinosaur scientists discovering relativity, or discussing a hypothetical world in which, incredibly, mammals took over the Earth. Obviously, man is only the dominant species on the Earth because of our brains, our tools, language, and social groups, but in the 1980s, paleontologist Dale Russell came up with the dinosauroid, an upright walking, opposable thumbed, big-brained, evolved dinosaur. Now, this is in the realm of the absurd, like I said before, at least to you and me it is, but within the theory of evolution, sure, why wouldn't this be one of the infinite possibilities? And then what follows in the article is where I have to start wondering, do any of these big-brained, opposable-thumbed, upright-walking evolutionary scientists have any self-awareness at all? Do they read what they write or listen to what they say? Regarding the hypothetical dinosauroid, he goes on to say this, quote, It's not impossible, but it's unlikely. The biology of an animal constrains the direction of its evolution. Your starting point limits your endpoints. Okay, okay, wait. Does it? Because how is that consistent with evolutionary theory? If you recall, per evolutionary theory, this planet existed as a rock and slime and whatever, and then lightning, and then life, and then all life, and then dinosaurs, mammals, and humans, uh, and we all came from exactly one starting point. And from that point came everything. So why now, just all of a sudden, is evolution limited by its starting point? That literally makes no logical sense, per their theory. He's saying that with the starting point of electrified pond scum, the limit is literally all things. But now a dinosaur, a much more complex creature, is limited. I mean, is this just me or does this simply not make any sense per evolutionary theory? But he goes on with his proofs. 
he asks us to consider the Jurassic period and the sauropod dinosaurs specifically, you know, the brontosaurus or longnecks or veggiesauruses, depending on your point of view. He said that these dinosaurs evolved just huge, up to 10 times the weight of an elephant. They're about 12 times the weight of a me, and as long as a blue whale. And they did this in different groups of sauropods on different continents at different times, in different climates. But other dinosaurs didn't become huge. He rightly, although cluelessly, states that, quote, the common thread linking these animals was that they were sauropods. Oh, gold star, sir. Yes, yes, sir. All these evolved dinosaurs started as sauropods and uh, ended, ended as sauropods. <laughs> Hashtag evolution. But why did they evolve from sauropods to sauropods, you may ask? Well, <laughs> quote, something about sauropod anatomy, lungs, hollow bones with a high strength to weight ratio, metabolism, or all these things unlocked their evolutionary potential. It let them grow big in a way that no land animals had ever before or have since. Okay, Yes, there are some that use a very scientific term for this mechanism, this limitation, design. He then makes the same discovery regarding large carnivorous dinosaurs. They just kept evolving as large carnivorous dinosaurs. See, evolution at work. Unfortunately, dinosaurs were just too stupid to evolve large brains because probably they, you know, they had small brains, which made them just not think about all the possibilities, if they would have just evolved large brains, so they didn't do it, I don't know. As we know, the smaller the brain, the dumber the creature. Uh, not Neanderthals and humans, though, huh? Neanderthals had bigger brains than Homo sapiens, but they were more stupider because we're Homo sapiens sapiens, the wise wise man, and Neanderthals were, well, they were just cave-dwelling, grunting, brutish Neanderthals. So, eh. The author goes on with his little thought experiment, though. Small herbivore dinosaurs evolved over time, and birds diversified, and longer legs evolved, and, quote, elaborate horns for fighting and display. Well, those evolved, too. They evolved to living in herds, having complex social lives, apparently. Then he sums up the dinosaur portion of our show with, quote, Yet dinosaurs mostly seem to repeat themselves, evolving giant herbivores and carnivores, with small brains. There's little about 100 million years of dinosaur history to hint they'd have done anything radically different if the asteroid hadn't intervened. We'd likely still have those supergiant, long-necked herbivores and huge tyrannosaur-like predators. Yes, okay, yes. I mean, I'm not sure if the asteroid hadn't hit and the flood hadn't happened, if we'd still have them or not. Probably to some degree, I don't know, maybe not to the same extent. But yes, dinosaurs would have continued making dinosaurs, because evolution is a stupid theory. Now back to our exercise. Would they have maintained control of the planet and evolved into the dinosauroid? Well... Quote, they may have evolved slightly bigger brains, but there's little evidence they'd have evolved into geniuses. Neither is it likely that mammals would have displaced them. Dinosaurs monopolized their environments to very end when the asteroid hit. Okay, would you mind wandering down a rabbit trail with me? You know, for just a moment. I promise it won't be long. Oh, good. Glad you agreed. So he said that, quote, neither is it likely that mammals would have displaced them. Well, what this author needs to do is go talk to some other scientists and paleontologists because just today, 
the day I'm recording this, I came across the news article from Sci-Fi, found on news.yahoo.com. Headline, mammals were planning to overthrow the dinosaurs well before the asteroid impact. Okay, well, that, that almost seems like, um, like the opposite thing. Now, I'm not going to go into this one, but here's the relevant quote for purposes of our amusement. Quote, We often think of dinosaurs as having been cut down in the prime by a classless, sucker-punching, planet-shaking asteroid with an axe to grind. Only afterward did the mammals slide in to fill the ecological gaps the dinosaurs left behind, right? Maybe not. The new study, carried out by scientists from the University of Ulu in Finland, the University of Vigo in Spain, and an international team of paleontological collaborators reveals that mammals were already poised to stage a planetary coup before the asteroid showed up and did the job for them. So I gotta ask, which one is it, Mr. Scientist Man? <laughs> uh, well, let's continue with our original confused thought experimenter, shall we? Now he slides on into the mammalian portion of our alleged history. He says, quote, Mammals, meanwhile, had different constraints. They never evolved supergiant herbivores and carnivores, but they repeatedly evolved big brains. Massive brains, as large or larger than ours, evolved in orcas, sperm whales, baleen whales, elephants, leopard seals, and apes. Now, he also mentions the crow and the parrot, you know, descendants of the dinosaurs. <laughs> stupid theory, and how they're smart, but it was the mammals that in general evolved the bigger brains and more complexity in their behaviors. But he cautions us, just eliminating the dinosaurs did not guarantee mammalian evolution to the point of, say, wild E. Coyote, a super a genius. No, sir. Quote, starting points may limit endpoints but they don't guarantee them either. The evolutionary history of primates suggests our evolution was anything but inevitable. In Africa, primates did evolve into big-brained apes and over 7 million years produced modern humans. But elsewhere, primate evolution took very different paths. When monkeys reached South America 35 million years ago, they just evolved into... More monkey species, and primates reached North America at least three separate times, 55 million years ago, 50 million years ago, and 20 million years ago. Yet, they didn't evolve into a species who make nuclear weapons and smartphones. Instead, for reasons we don't understand, they went extinct. Okay, so monkeys evolved into monkeys. Are we starting to sense a pattern here? And some didn't even make it. They went extinct. <laughs> Where's your evolution now, monkey? But, quote, in Africa and Africa alone, primate evolution took a unique direction. Something about Africa's fauna, flora, or geography drove the evolution of apes, terrestrial, big-bodied, big-brained, tool-using primates. Oh, so the African landscape evolved apes to humans. The fauna, the flora, and the geography, that's, that's what made monkeys that only evolve into monkeys evolve into something else. And the final sentence, the summation of his entire article, the thought he wants to leave us with, the coupe de grassi, if you will, quote, even with the dinosaurs gone, our evolution needed the right combination of opportunity and luck. <sighs> Is anybody else tired? I'm just tired.
What's sad is that this author can't see the stupidity of sticking with a theory that literally makes no sense. He can't see the contradictions in what he's saying versus the theory that he's clinging to. He can't see the obvious case for design rather than random chance. But he does see the implausibility of the theory. It takes opportunity and luck. Yeah, I'd say more luck and daydreaming more than anything else. He does see that evolution is apparently very limited based on the starting point and the ending point of the various examples he cited being essentially the same thing. See, the thought experiment was actually an interesting one. Seriously, regardless of if you believe in the fairy tale of evolution or not, this was kind of interesting. From a biblical young earth creationist standpoint, this thought experiment reveals the absurdity in the evolution theory, the absurdity that we all knew existed, but from an absurd point of view, it's a fun hypothetical exercise. From an evolutionist worldview, and this encompasses all atheistic, agnostic, and those adhering to some sort of theistic evolution believers, this should have been an exercise that revealed one of the many, many gaps in their deeply held religious theory. But really, evolution is meant to be kind of a catch-all, right? It's, it's all things to all people. This is why it can be directed, it can be undirected, it can be limitless, it can be limited to certain boundaries. It is always absolutely proven correct and constantly being revised, updated, and corrected. See, to the atheist, it proves there's no God. To the agnostic, it proves that even if a God exists, eh, he isn't really required. To the theistic evolutionist, it reveals the glory of God to start things in motion, allow for millions of years of deformities, mutations, pain and suffering, bloodshed, disease, and death before God decided to choose two evolved apes to breathe his breath of life into as the first humans that would then soon after sin against God, leading to the introduction of pain and suffering, bloodshed, disease, and um, and um, death. Wait a minute. Uh, it's almost like in the realm of Christianity, the theory of evolution eliminates sin being the cause of death and all of the various pain and suffering, groaning, if you will, on this planet and in this life, which renders the sacrifice of Jesus as a patently stupid move. Now, I know Christians bristle at that statement. Oh, trust me, I've seen it. But the sacrifice of Jesus being a fully sinless human and fully God, his death, burial, and resurrection, the sole purpose of which was to be the blood sacrifice that not just covers, but eliminates the sin debt of his children, breaking the curse of sin, that of pain and suffering, bloodshed, disease, and death, in order to save his children. If death came before sin, then, then death and pain are not a curse of sin, meaning that Jesus' sacrifice to wipe away sin is pointless, as death and pain, etc., etc., will still remain. This turns Jesus into an important rabble-rouser with good moral tales, but a clinically insane, deluded persona of being some sort of a God-man savior of humanity, rather than the all-holy, perfectly righteous, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent God that he is. Theistic evolution is not only a stupid theory, it's also a blasphemous one. So, if you're going to go with evolution, um, keep the Bible out of it, uh, please, and, and thank you. Now, evolution to the young earth, six days of creation, rightly understanding Christian person, is low-hanging fruit to show the power of the true God and the truth of the scriptures. The problem is that most Christians these days either don't have any idea about the mess of lies, contradictions, and fanciful tales that comprises evolution and how to easily disprove the garbage theory, or they simply just don't care. 
So for most Christians, evolution isn't a witnessing tool. It's a dark, scary corner in the back of a long, dangerous alleyway that they just refuse to look into or walk down, just ceding that ground to the science. Now, I wish I could say that the author of this article is just some wet-behind-the-ears junior beat reporter with no idea about anything evolution, creation, science, or theology that got handed this silly topic and was told to do a story on it. I can't say that, though. This article was written by Nicholas R. Longrich, a senior lecturer in paleontology and evolutionary biology at the University of Bath. This is a wise, wise man, caught up in a stupid, stupid theory, making ridiculous claims, ignoring obvious evidences and contradictions, choosing to ignore or just fully blinded to the impossibility and absurdity of the very words he wrote from his professional learned perspective. So the Bible is not up for discussion. It's not an evergreen or living document that's open for interpretation. It's not a book of good stories that we can pick and choose to use or discard however it's needed. It's the living Word of God. We are not to compromise on anything that this book tells us. There are over 2,300 uses of the Hebrew word for day, yom, in the Old Testament. Yom, being defined by the context that surrounds it, can be either a 12- or a 24-hour day, or an undefined period of time. In all but six instances, there is total agreement as to the meaning of all those Old Testament yams. The only contentious uses are found in the first six days of creation. For some reason, those uses, bound by morning and evening, and a number, like first, second, etc., and the definite article, the, the most heavily bounded use of yom in the Old Testament, those six instances are open for discussion. Does that make any sense? So as Christians, we are not to compromise the Bible. If the world and the Bible disagree, it's the world that's wrong. If science disputes the Bible, so-called science is soundly destroyed and dismissed. Every single time. But to do that, we must know our Bibles. We must understand what's in the Bible, and there's only one way to do that. Read and pray. By doing that, you'll be able to see the silliness that the world tries to pass off as indisputable fact or common knowledge, the massive contradictions the world too often successfully touts as truth, and the ever-shifting narratives that are eloquently declared as reality, and be able to point out the incoherence to others while being able to offer a cogent, logical, historical account, and the hope of salvation that lies only in the omnipotent creator God of the Bible. Would you agree that context matters? When overhearing a conversation, context matters. When watching an old movie, context matters. When reading your Bible, don't just read a verse, figure out what's going on around it. Context matters. And as we dive deeper into the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution, oh yeah, context matters. Along with context, the intent is equally crucial. Words, meanings, phrases, these all change over time. In order to understand the Bible, in order to understand Shakespeare, in order to understand our founding documents, we must also know the intent of the author or authors. To take something from the past and try to force our current day context and our current interpretations without giving any thought to the context and intent is to do a disservice to the document, the author, and the reader today. 
Welcome back to the American Genesis, episode 21, part 3 in our look at the amendments. From my personal perspective, one of the biggest problems we have these days, over the last few years at least, is a complete obliviousness to the concept of context. Were some of the founding fathers slave owners? Yes, context. Were there a number of things you were to be killed for in the Old Testament law? Yes, context. Do the founding documents use language that can be taken differently today? Yes, context. And that brings us to one of the most decontexted amendments of them all, the beaten and battered, much maligned Second Amendment, which reads, quote, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. Okay. Now I'm going to throw all my shells on the table. I'm absolutely convinced that the Second Amendment guarantees the right for citizens to own absolutely any weapon they would like to own. But you wouldn't want someone to own a tank or a nuclear bomb, would you? Why not? If they're law-abiding, freedom-respecting, legal citizens, what would they do with it? I mean, I could easily own a nuclear bomb, and I'd no more detonate that bomb somewhere than I would shoot up that same somewhere. The stupid throwaway line that President Jojo likes to use, you know, when the Second Amendment was written, you couldn't own a cannon. Well, actually, yes, yes, you could own a cannon. In fact, you can still own a cannon. The only difference is that you'd likely have to do a whole lot more paperwork today in order to own your own cannon. But let's take a look at this amendment in context. This is important. Remember that at the outset, the federal government was to control the armed forces, the Army and the Navy, later to be followed by the Marines and the Air Force. What about the National Guard, the armed forces that are controlled by the state that they reside in unless the federal government requires them for specific purposes? Well, the National Guard's official birthday is December 13th, 1636. So they just turned 386 years old a few days ago. This stems back to, per the National Guard website, quote, On this date, the first militia regiments in North America were organized in Massachusetts. Based upon an order of the Massachusetts Bay Colony's General Court, the colony's militia was organized into three permanent regiments to better defend the colony. So the question is, does the right to keep and bear arms apply to the people at large or the militia only, which would be most closely known as the National Guard today? Also, what is meant by the state, and how do the position of the commas affect the sentence structure and the intent? Let's take another look at the amendment, one more time. A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. Okay, we've got four phrases here. Bear with me, I'm going to break this down some. Four phrases. First, a well-regulated militia. Second, being necessary to the security of a free state. Third phrase is the right of the people to keep and bear arms. And fourth, shall not be infringed. Now, it's pretty clear, at least to me, that a well-regulated militia goes with being necessary to the security of a free state. It also seems clear to me that the term state being singular rather than plural, necessary to the security of the free states, in comparison, 
is speaking of the country, the United States, as a generic entity. Okay, yes, throughout the Constitution, both state and states are capitalized, so this could very well be referencing a specific state within the Union, but the construction of the sentence to me would make it seem odd if they were referring to states as singular entities on their own. Either way, whether this refers to the United States generically as a whole or the specific state in question, it really makes no difference for this discussion. Now, with regard to the term militia, if we refer back to the Constitution, the militia appears to be basically the National Guard, a trained fighting force equipped by the federal government, controlled by the state of residence, but able to be called upon by the commander-in-chief for national or even international duties if the need arises. Recall that in Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, it reads in part, quote, The President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. So this sounds like a National Guard in today's vernacular. So we have, if you'll permit me to paraphrase, it is well understood that an armed, trained, and structured state-based fighting force, the National Guard, is necessary so as to ensure the security of that state's freedom. This seems like the setup to me, doesn't it to you? As if the founders were answering the objection they knew was coming to having a militia, a standing military presence inside of each state, much as the British did with the colonies with the intent of maintaining control and compliance. This almost comes off as an apology of sorts. We're sorry to have to give the impression that a military force is there to enact control. Now, let's look at the last two fragments, the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Let's hearken all the way back to the preamble of the Constitution. Remember with me, quote, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Remember, this was a list of reasons as to why this Constitution was written. The we the people clearly doesn't refer to the militia, or at least not the militia as a military unit. So in the Second Amendment, if they meant militia, why wouldn't they have just written the right of the militia to keep and bear arms, rather than changing it to people, which clearly has a different definition? I mean, did they run out of eyes or something and they had to come up with a different word? No, we know that the preamble, the we the people, wasn't referring to the military. It wasn't referring to only the founders or the specific authors or the signers of the Constitution. It was referring to all of us, the citizens of the United States, collectively, because this document was and is still supposed to be the binding contract we all live by in our interacting and intersecting lives. So this clause is a new thought, but it appears to me to be the countermeasure to the militia's presence in the states. Now, when I first moved to West Virginia a number of years ago, there was one sentence construction they use that struck me as odd, kind of funny, and, and actually it kind of struck me as a little bit lazy. I hadn't heard this in the past states I had lived in. It's really weird. Now, I would normally say something like, that tire needs to be replaced. 
They shorten it here. They drop out the useless words and they say, that tire needs replaced. The to be is implied and frankly unnecessary. Now, I will still generally use to be when I talk, but not always. I find myself slipping into the more efficient structure from time to time. So what does that have to do with the price of tea in China, you may be asking? Well, that's what I see happening between the second and the third clause of this amendment. Once again, allow me a little wiggle room here to paraphrase. Think of it like this. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state necessitates so as to not threaten the liberty of the people or the state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, which shall not be infringed. Okay, I know I'm taking some liberty here, but people is not militia, so this must be a new, yet connected, thought. And that moves us into Clause 4, shall not be infringed. Well, this has to either apply to the militia or the people. Now, I'd say that both could be true. The necessity of the militia to maintain security for a state shouldn't be infringed, although the rights of that militia inside the state must be infringed. They must not be allowed to enact martial law. They must be well-disciplined. The more likely option is for shall not be infringed to be connected to the right of the people to keep and bear arms. So allowing me a little freedom and license to put it in more of today's vernacular, keeping it within the context of the period of history they're just emerging from, I think I would say it more like this. It is well understood that an armed, trained, and structured state-based fighting force, the National Guard, is necessary so as to ensure the security of that state's freedom. However, this also necessitates, so as to not threaten the liberty of the people or the state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, a right which shall not be infringed. That's how I'd state it. But am I right? Well, ultimately you, and the courts, must decide that. But the courts have generally fallen in that general direction of the interpretation, with near total infringements on owning battleships, nuclear weapons, tanks, etc., and at least partial infringements on owning things like fully automatic weapons. <sighs> Although I believe this amendment has nothing in it that allows the government to step on the toes of the people at all, here we are. We've kind of agreed to do it. But just because I think this is what it's saying, what did the founders think? What was their intent? Well, we don't have an ultra-high-def video of their deliberations and discussions, but we do have statements made by the founders in other arenas regarding the idea of an armed populace. I will read some of these quotes, and then I'll leave it up to you to determine intent. Richard Henry Lee, a signer of the Declaration and a framer of the Second Amendment in Congress, said, quote, To preserve liberty, it is essential that the whole body of the people always possess arms and be taught alike, especially when young, how to use them. George Washington, in his first annual address to both houses of Congress, said, quote, A free people ought not only to be armed, but disciplined. Thomas Jefferson, in the original draft of the Virginia Constitution, said, quote, No free man shall ever be debarred the use of arms. Also, Jefferson, in a letter to James Madison, December 1787, said, quote, What country can preserve its liberties if their rulers are not warned from time to time that their people preserve the spirit of resistance? Let them take arms. George Mason, recall, we talked about him a few weeks ago. He's termed the father of the Bill of Rights. 
He said, quote, to disarm the people is the most effectual way to enslave them. And then let me give you one more quote, one last Jefferson quote, in which he was quoting actually an 18th century criminologist, Cesar Basseria, quote, the laws that forbid the carrying of arms are laws of such a nature. They disarm only those who are neither inclined nor determined to commit crimes. Such laws make things worse for the assaulted and better for the assailants. They serve rather to encourage than to prevent homicides, for an unarmed man may be attacked with greater confidence than an armed man. So I'll leave a link in the notes with many, many more quotes from many more people. You can read more if you'd like. Looking at the context, looking at the words of various founders in order to make a judgment call about intent, can we say with a degree of confidence that the founders intended for the population at large to be armed? and for some of them to serve in the militia, and for others to serve in the national military. To me, I think it's a very clear cut-and-dry case, personally. So from here, there are all sorts of arguments that have been made about why we shouldn't be able to own a certain style of weapon, a certain capacity of magazine, a certain caliber size, etc. None of these comport with the plain reading of the Second Amendment. President Joey Baga Used Diapers says that nobody should own weapons of war. Did you notice that the Second Amendment didn't say that? In fact, today, the general citizen does not own a weapon of war. Most military personnel wouldn't want to use the guns we use, at least not for a wartime situation. We have firearms that may look like military-issue weapons, but they certainly are not military-issue weapons. But even more to the point, at the time of the writing of the Second Amendment, the weapons of war, the available firearms, were the only firearms available. So the people literally owned weapons of war. They were called rifles or muskets. So per the context of this amendment, we the people should not be infringed of owning military-issue weapons if we so choose. Now we're also told that we don't need assault weapons. Well, because we don't have military-issue weapons, literally all of our firearms are assault weapons, or none of them are. They're all basically the same type and style of weapon. You can't categorize weapons by look or color. They must be categorized by action. Is it automatic or semi-automatic? Is it lever action or bolt action? A semi-automatic rifle with a typical generic wooden stock is no different than a scary black AR-15 semi-automatic rifle with black plastic pieces and various accessories attached. The only difference is the look. As for gun violence, the cries that the gun is at fault, that it's worse than ever, that children are being slaughtered day after day by guns. Well, as I mentioned in episode 70 of this podcast, when working our way through the Democrat Party platform, Glenn Beck's producer, or at least one of them, Stu Bergier, has his own show called Stu Does America. And he did a special that was entitled Special Edition, The Definitive Debunking of the Left's Gun Myths. Now, I can do no better than he did at using actual data and facts to destroy the narrative that uh, gun's bad. Now, I'll leave that link in the notes as well. If you haven't done it already, I'd highly recommend you check that one out. And with that, I think we're at a point where I can bring this episode to a close. I hope that you found this breakdown of the Second Amendment useful. And let me caution once again, this is my logic-based interpretation, but it's still admittedly my interpretation. You should read this for yourself, read the other statements by the founders, draw your own conclusion. 
just by participating on my what's essentially real-time thought process here today, you've done more thinking of the Second Amendment than most of the population of the United States, including most of our elected officials. So, so good for you. And now, I guess all that's left to do is say, until next time. Well, we've come to the end of the Logical Christian Podcast for 2022. The end of season one, if you will, or even if you won't. I mean, that calls up to me, right? It's been an amazing year. We've laughed, we've cried, we've probably fallen asleep behind the wheel a time or two listening to me drone on. We need to be more careful. But seriously, I want to thank all of you that have chosen to spend a couple hours a week listening to this one podcast out of literally infinity choices. It's humbling to know that there is a slowly growing collection of people across the country and the globe that find what I have to say worthy of spending their precious time. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, as I'm going to do, I'd recommend that you take some time to enjoy the holiday season. With all the rushing, commercialization, and the stress, take time to enjoy the sights and sounds, music and lights, the concerts and shows, family, friends, and church. But most importantly, take some time to remember why we have Christmas. Remember that this is the season and soon the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus, sent by his Father, willingly choosing to leave his throne— leave his splendor and glory, the constant worship and adoration of the angels, to come to earth at a less than ideal period of history as a baby that needed to be cared for, taught, raised to boy and then manhood, only to be despised by the world, beaten, mocked, crucified on the cross, murdered. But death in the grave couldn't hold Jesus, and three days later he arose. And he did all this to make a way for those that would repent of their sinful lives and breaking God's laws, and believe, placing their faith in him to get to heaven. What an amazing, awesome God we serve that would be willing to do this for us. If you're saved, praise God. If you're not, what are you waiting for? So with that, I'll wish you a Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year's. And now, the Logical Christian Podcast is signing off until next year. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. God bless.